The two most fortunate things that can happen to a painter are, first, to be Spanish, and second, to be named Dali. These two fortunate things have happened to me, Salvador Dali. These are the opening words of the painter, Salvador Dali, in his notorious treatise on painting called 50 Secrets of Magic Craftsmanship, published in 1948. It's an odd way to begin a book about oil painting, to immediately juxtapose you, the reader, as being less fortunate than him by nature of your birth. You have two primary obstacles before you. One, you likely aren't Spanish, but even if you are, you have a second obstacle. Two, you likely aren't Dali. It's more like an opening entry to a narcissist's journal. But let's say we try to take Dali's playful narcissism with a grain of salt. Although, knowing Dali, I suspect we are going to need a whole salt shaker. All that aside, this strange treatise does have a lot to teach us. It offers the secret of Dali's mustache, the secret of the single most important color in oil painting, the secret of Dali's slumber with a key technique, the source of his dreamlike imagery, and many, many more. Some secrets are humorous, some are useful, and some are truly Dalinian. If you are unfamiliar with Salvador Dali, I highly recommend you pause this episode and scroll down to episode 7 in the podcast feed. That episode is called 7 Salvador Dali, Saint of a Delusion. That episode is a deep dive into his life and work. It really gives you a foundation that helps you understand Dali the person, Dali the painter, and Dali the larger-than-life character he becomes by this point, when he is writing this treatise. In The Secrets to Come, we will see that Salvador Dali does have a lot to teach us. I don't know if I would go so far as to say he was one of the timeless masters of oil painting, though I would say that he was one of the masters of his style, that being surrealism of the 1900s. But as you listen to Dali tell it, he will have you believe that he is one of the greatest of all time, and even more so, as his name implies, that he is the savior of art, reincarnating the craftsmanship of the Renaissance into modern art. You might assume that is my own hyperbole, but don't take my word for it. Here is the dedication page to this treatise, in which he writes, At the age of six, I wanted to be Napoleon, and I wasn't. 
at the age of 15, I wanted to be Dali, and I have been. At the age of 25, I wanted to become the most sensational painter in the world, and I achieved it. At 35, I wanted to affirm my life by success, and I attained it. Now, at 45, I want to paint a masterpiece and to save modern art from chaos and laziness. I will succeed. This book is consecrated to this crusade, and I dedicate it to all the young who have faith in true painting. That is a bold dedication. So does this treatise accomplish his goal of saving modern art from chaos and laziness? Let's find out. I am MJ Dorian. This is Creative Codex, episode 21, The Magic Secrets of Salvador Dali. Let's begin. Four years of his life, Salvador Dali succeeded in creating a painting style that is distinct to him alone. So much so that when you look up current artists that are attempting to do anything in the surrealist style, your eye can't help but compare it to Dali, or can't help but to see Dali's influence. For example, anytime someone paints a barren desert landscape, with a clear blue sky and places vaguely human forms in it, that work is possessed by the spirit of Dali, for better or worse. Even if the painting is relatively original, the implication that his influence is there can make that art seem derivative. What has always interested me about Dali is that he firmly placed his feet in the present, but he had a reverence for the past, specifically the Renaissance period of art history. He was obsessed about the old masters and their painting methods. In his writings, he often sings the praises of artists like Leonardo da Vinci, Raphael, Velázquez, and Vermeer. And you can see this influence throughout his work, in his whole life, from his sketches and interests to his art philosophy. During the Renaissance, treatises on craftsmanship and philosophy were very popular. There are manuscripts now held in museum collections, which were originally shared amongst painters. Treatises that reveal the secrets of making pigments, containing formulas for crushing specific quantities of minerals and organic matter, mixed with specific drops of oil to make the perfect burnt sienna or ultramarine. One of the earliest secret pigment recipes is for the color red. 
it is credited to the indigenous people of Mexico, who discovered that crushing cochineal insects together in a mortar and pestle creates this vibrant and deep red. It is equally effective in fabric dyeing and paint. Amazingly, this method of creating red, it's still used today. And if you look on the labels of food you eat, and you notice one of the ingredients is carmine, C-A-R-M-I-N-E, then the source of that carmine red is crushed cochineal insects. <laughs> Surprise! This shows up in unexpected places such as candy. Red Skittles are colored with cochineal. Yep, check the ingredients. It will say carmine red. And there's this entire history of pigments that's endlessly fascinating. But we digress. Aside from practical treatises, there were also manuscripts shared among artists in the Renaissance that explore the philosophy of art and oil painting. Some of these became highly influential for hundreds of years after an artist's death, like the book A Treatise on Painting by Leonardo da Vinci, which was compiled from his personal manuscripts and published after his death, further cementing his legacy as an important Renaissance thinker. It is with these perspectives in mind that Salvador Dali approaches writing his treatise, 50 Secrets of Magic Craftsmanship. By this point in 1948, he was in his 40s and was well-versed in the history of art and oil painting. It is clear that his intention was to produce a treatise that would cement his legacy in these traditions, a treatise that painters who followed him would appreciate for hundreds of years following his death. I have chosen 10 key secrets from this treatise, which I think you will very much enjoy. Some are thoughtful, others are humorous, and some are just delightfully bizarre. Before revealing his first secret, Dali gives us a glimpse of his painting philosophy. In chapter 1, he states... And what is a painting? It is a piece of canvas or of wood on which has been spread with art a little earth mixed with a little oil, by the aid of a few hairs attached to the end of a stick. Consider, by comparison, the means at the disposal of the motion picture industry and the technical effort involved in the miles of celluloid that have been filmed up to the present day. How many screws, lenses, how much electricity, how much organization. And yet, all these films perish and are condemned beforehand to the most anonymous oblivion after a few years and often after a few weeks. It would therefore be prudent to assume that in order with such simple means to spread paint on a piece of wood and to create a work appealing to the senses which will remain immortal, it must be necessary to proceed and to manipulate it with a kind of art close to magic." Unquote. Herein lies the intention of the book's title, 50 Secrets of Magic Craftsmanship. 
and some of the secrets that follow will have an air of magic to them. And I think that's what makes this treatise so unique, such as certain techniques for sleeping, or certain rules about lovemaking, or methods for increasing the effectiveness of your perception by meditating on shells of certain sea creatures. Dali goes on. It must be clearly understood that the paint, as it comes from the tube, is nothing more than that which is used to paint doors. But that, nevertheless, when knowingly used, it becomes as it became for all the great ancient masters, a matter more precious and inimitable than all the enamels and all the gems of creation. And in order to make the reader sense, if not wholly understand this, I should like to recommend to him, and most particularly to every young apprentice in painting, that he gaze long and philosophically one afternoon in spring at the azure of the sky, on a day wholly without clouds, and preferably in a Mediterranean country. Then he will observe that this sky is composed, as it were, of a precious substance which eludes his rational faculties, for at the same time that it will appear to him to be made of an infinitely smooth and hard substance, like an agate sphere, this homogeneity, so opaque and materially corporeal, will seem luminous and as if composed of transparency and of spirituality itself. And in this, the sensations just described will be in accord with physics, since the hardness and the violence, so to speak, of such an azure are constituted of nothing but infinite layers of superposed, transparent air. Exactly the same thing is true of a beautiful pictorial matter. A color as it comes from a tube does not exist as a beautiful and transcendent pictorial matter. The latter, on the contrary, is constituted and formed like the very azure of the sky which serves as our example by a succession of subtle, quasi-spiritual, and infinitely fine successive layers. As transparent as possible, and for the obtaining of which the magic of media intervenes those mysteriously blended films, which will be one of the primordial secrets of this book, superposed, spread one over the other according to the harmony of their physical and chemical properties, attaining the maximum brilliancy, more limpid than that of enamel and less fixed. Since it is susceptible to all the future mysteries and areolations, of Patina. Dali presents us with a thoroughly magical view of oil painting, as a mystical act. A great painting is a miracle in physical form. We'll take a moment to appreciate that sentiment, because in the same breath, in the passage that follows, Dali can't help but throw us back down to earth again, as he attempts to convey to us the differences between the old masters and the modern painters, 
On this difference, he says. So great a difference that it may well be said, without fear of falling into a Dalinian exaggeration, that whereas the matter of the old painters is so refined, so completely and continually modified by intelligence, that it becomes spiritualized to the point of giving us the illusion that they painted their pictures with elements of heaven, one has the impression that modern painters paint their pictures with their stools. So directly does their matter flow from the tube of their biology without the slightest intervention of the heart. Oh boy. And thus, Dali opens his treatise by presenting us with the most mystical interpretation of oil painting, followed by his most bitter rebuke of modern painters, effectively whiplashing us from the firmament to the pavement in one paragraph. Whether you agree with him or not, you gotta give it to the man. If nothing else, he is entertaining. Throughout this treatise, Dali includes sketches and scribbled notes in the margins of the book, giving it the effect of a manuscript that Dali wrote and which he also jotted down additional notes in. I can't say I've ever seen this approach taken with a book, uh, but I actually really like it. In the margins of chapter one, Dali provides a useful list. It reads, 10 rules for him who wishes to be a painter. One, painter. It is better to be rich than poor. So learn how to make gold and precious stones come out of your brush. Two, don't be afraid of perfection. You'll never attain it. Three, begin by learning to draw and paint like the old masters. After that, you can do as you like. Everyone will respect you. Four, don't throw to the dogs either your eye or your hand or your brain, for you will need them all if you are to be a painter. Five, if you are one of those who believe that modern art has surpassed Vermeer and Raphael, don't read this book. Just go right on in your blissful ignorance. Six, don't vomit on your picture because it is the picture which can vomit on you after you are dead. Seven, no lazy masterpieces. Eight, painter, paint. Nine, painter, don't drink alcohol and chew hashish only five times in your life. 10, if painting doesn't love you, all your love for her will be unavailing. This list indirectly gives us a preview of Dali's artist philosophy. That is, the personal philosophy that guides his thoughts and behavior as an artist. For example, in the second rule, he tells us that perfection is unattainable. All in all, that is pretty healthy advice to follow, as long as you continue to work toward your goals and continue learning. It's clear that he continues striving to realize his visions, even in the knowledge that perfection is not attainable. Rule number three, again makes reference to the old masters, 
which Dali so revered, stating that in his view, every great artist must begin by learning from the masters that came before them. Again, that advice is pretty sound. Even if you end up painting abstract forms, there is something to be said for the refinement of your perception and your artist's eye that develops when you dedicate yourself to understanding the old masters and their techniques. Rule number eight, painter paint. Okay, <laughs> generally good advice. Better than painter don't paint. I wish he had elaborated a bit more on that one. But from having spent episode seven of this podcast, already getting familiar with Salvador Dali, I would say the implication is this. Make your work and make it often. The more work you make, the more likely you will create something great or something unique, which will then lead to something great later on. If you become too fixated on this idea that less is more, quality over quantity, well, you might find yourself lacking genuinely brilliant ideas. There is a wonderful phrase from Picasso that applies here. He said, inspiration exists, but it has to find you working. Unquote. It helps to know that Picasso is considered one of the most prolific artists of the 20th century. His official artworks number in the range of 50,000. Yeah. He was often making two artworks per day. Of course, some of them were less complex than others. It's important to acknowledge that. Sometimes it may have been a painting. Other times it was a drawing, a sculpture, or a photograph. But still, his quote fills in the gaps when Dali says, painter, paint. Picasso adds, inspiration exists, but it has to find you working. Rule nine surprised me. He tells the painter that he or she shouldn't drink alcohol and should only chew hashish five times in their life. Some further reasoning on those two points could have been beneficial, but nowhere else in the treatise does Dali elaborate on either of these, or on his position regarding other substances. Still, it's not bad advice, per se, right? No one ever ruined their life and squandered their talent from not drinking, right? So, as we consider even these ten loosely written rules Dali provides, his artist's philosophy begins to emerge, and one aspect seems to be integral to becoming a great artist. Discipline. I would tend to agree on this point. Greatness, however you might define it, does seem to go hand in hand with discipline. After all, you have to have discipline to create a substantial body of work in the first place, right? You have to have discipline to sacrifice much of your leisure time to pursue your creative journey. Something to think about. Some food for thought, perhaps. And now that we have been properly primed on some of Dolly's perspectives, it is time for the first secret. The secret of the slumber with a key. In undertaking an important pictorial work, which you are anxious to bring to a successful completion, and on which your heart is particularly set, 
You must, before anything else, begin it by sleeping as deeply, as soundly as it is possible for you to do. A heavy, long, and peaceful sleep will therefore be most propitious, not only to create the physical and psychic calm to be desired in order to attain the coolness necessary to face the white and menacing bull of your virgin canvas, which, at the end of your labor, is to fall immortalized by the death stroke of your last touch. But also, and especially, you must know that it is precisely during this sleep which you wrongly regard as reducing you to a state of paradoxical inactivity and indifference before the imminence of the work which you are preparing to execute, that you will, secretly, in the very depths of your spirit, solve most of its subtle and complicated technical problems, which, in your state of waking consciousness, you would never be humanly capable of solving, so that, at the moment of awakening from this precious preliminary sleep, as you are stretching and yawning voluptuously before the immaculate conception of your virgin and intact painting, you will be able to say to yourself, without fear of falling into exaggeration, that the principal part, that is to say the sleep, of the work is already done." Unquote. Dali was an avid reader of psychology. One of his favorite concepts was the unconscious mind. In this opening passage, he gives us the advice to get a deep and restful night's sleep before even putting the first brush strokes on the canvas. One very interesting detail. He mentions that the sleep itself will cure the inevitable technical problems which will arise in the labor of your work. I think he might be right. One of the oldest tricks to jumpstart your creative process toward an innovation or solution to a problem is to let it consume your mind on the way to bed, to let it be the last thing you are thinking about as you drift off to sleep. Then, when you awake in the morning, the answer to your problem will suddenly appear. Maybe not immediately when you shut off your alarm, but perhaps when you are in the bathroom or within a few minutes. And even if a clear solution doesn't appear, you will always notice that some new threads seem to appear, some new paths of inquiry that might lead you to the solution or to the inspired idea. I have seen this trick work in my own life countless times, and there is anecdotal evidence from many creative people that confirms this too. So that is Dali's advice concerning a good night's sleep. He then describes a specific sleep secret he calls slumber with a key. This is essentially a type of nap, which is incredibly brief and meant to be done in the afternoon, as the mind and body tend to need a rest, especially if you started early in the morning. He goes on. In order to make use of the slumber with a key, you must seat yourself in a bony armchair, preferably of Spanish style with your head tilted back and resting on the stretched leather back. Your two hands must hang beyond the arms of the chair, to which your own arms must be soldered in a supineness of complete relaxation. In this posture, you must hold a heavy 
key, which you will keep suspended, delicately pressed between the extremities of the thumb and forefinger of your left hand. Under the key, you will previously have placed a plate upside down on the floor. Having made these preparations, you will have merely to let yourself be progressively invaded by a serene afternoon sleep, like the spiritual drop of anisette of your soul rising in the cube of sugar of your body. The moment the key drops from your fingers, you may be sure that the noise of its fall on the upside down plate will awaken you, and you may be equally sure that this fugitive moment when you had barely lost consciousness and during which you cannot be assured of having really slept is totally sufficient, inasmuch as not a second more is needed for your whole physical and psychic being to be revivified by just the necessary amount of repose, for it is exactly and neither more nor less what you needed before undertaking your virtuous afternoon labors." Unquote. I find the most curious detail about this nap is its brevity, the idea being that the moment your mind touches something akin to sleep, the moment your consciousness dips its toe into the pool of sleep, your hand begins to loosen its grip on the key, and those few seconds of true sleep are enough to rejuvenate your mind but also to bring you to a point of physical calm and mental clarity upon waking. A calm and clarity which will be beneficial for the work you are resuming. In a footnote, Dolly mentions, I owe my knowledge of the slumber with a key to the fact that it was practiced by the Capuchin monks of Toledo. But many years after I learned of it, on traveling out of Geneva by automobile, my great friend, the painter Jose Maria Sert, explained to me in a memorable conversation on the different kinds of slumbers, according to the arts that they were practiced. Accordingly, the slumber with a key was traditionally practiced by the Aviso painters of architectonic drawings, who needed for their craft an exceptionally calm and steady hand. Neat. If the origin of that method is true, that is pretty interesting. On to secret number two. The secret of the periods of carnal abstinence and indulgence to be observed by the painter. Be as chaste as possible and practice carnal abstinence during the periods when you are not materially launched on your work. That is to say, during the inspiration and the conception of your painting. For during this spiritual process, it is most desirable that the accumulation of your libido impulses, unable to find outlet in an actual realization of desires, should nourish the process of your dreams and reveries, especially in the state of gestation which is, as Paracelsus said, above all a state of digestion, of transformation, of transubstantiation, and today that we know Freud, we may add also, and above all, of sublimation, which, as we also know today, is the state which characterizes the constitutional basis of the artistic phenomenon. On the other hand, and contradicting the fear expressed by Sinini that the painter's hand would tremble in consequence, 
I shall tell you that precisely at the moment of placing yourself, really before your canvas, in order to begin to paint it, it will be very desirable that you should establish the regular habit of making love once a day, at the least. And note also this, that you must never do it in the morning, but immediately after the slumber with a key, and once more according to your disposition before going to sleep. Remember then, abstinence during the period of conception, and love during the periods of your realization. For you know already that while you are working, all anxiety must be absent from your spirit, since I have already explained that you must execute your work in a half-waking state, lulled by zephyrs of memories, mingled with readings that are sufficiently monotonous, so that you will barely hear them. This state is exactly the one which the regular gratification of your carnal desires will procure you. Whereas, during your period of conception, these must appear to your imagination by turns, as if torn from the fiery and drooling parchments of the annals of demonology and caressed by the downy scores of the solfeggio of cherubs." Unquote. Wow. Okay. So, let's review. Dali recommends that you abstain from sex when you are in the beginning stages of your inspiration and the conception of your work. Essentially, when you are laying down the foundation and foreseeing all the moving parts. It's interesting. This might be colored by a bit of magical thinking, although it is called 50 Secrets of Magic Craftsmanship. This idea seems to be saying that abstaining from sexual gratification somehow imbues the initial creative act with more vitality. Let's consider it. Maybe there is some grain of truth in there which has nothing to do with life forces and energies. We could see it as a dedication of resources. Let's say you have limited mental and physical resources, which we all do, of course. And when you are in the beginning conception stages of your next masterpiece, which you should be completely and totally devoted to with your entire being, well, then using some of those mental or physical resources on sexual gratification could sap your physical energy and mental sharpness. Maybe. It might also change from person to person. I think it's something to consider, but I don't fully buy it. On the flip side, if you are choosing abstinence as a demonstration of willpower and as a sacrifice to your creative process until a given point, perhaps some goalpost you intend to reach before rewarding your corporeal form, then maybe that could work as a motivating factor, right? Sometimes you have to trick your physical body through a bargain of some kind before it fully hops on board and commits its resources to help you stay up late working, for example. And maybe for some people, bargaining your sexuality or some similar reward might be effective. At the end of the day, it's about motivation and follow-through. Dali's second portion of this secret is a bit um, excessive. He recommends that once you have started work on your masterpiece and passed the point of conception, that you should be having sex once a day, even twice. Uh, okay. <laughs> There's at least a few problems with that. One, your partner's libido has to be pretty accommodating for that. Not impossible, but still, life is life. 
Two, doesn't that just become a chore? Are you writing it in your schedule? I mean, he says never in the morning, once in the afternoon, after your slumber with a key, and once before bed. That's a bit regimented. Come on, Dolly. Can't we have one night where we just Netflix and chill? I mean, literally. Uh, never mind. On to secret number three. The secret of the painter's marriage. Every painter must have a wife and a mistress. But all three must live together and live in the most perfect harmony. You realize immediately that this involves a menage a trois. With your legitimate wife, you must begin to cohabit at the age of 12. And at this moment, she will be exactly 1,300 years old. Her name is Painting. Her cheeks are fresh as a rose. Her breasts are the roundest that it has ever been given you to contemplate. And you would take her at the most for 36. And you must know that she will never age. In order that your marriage with painting shall be a happy marriage, your love must not, as you might think, be absolutely reciprocal, though it is quite necessary that it be shared. Remember the unhappy love of Cezanne with his painting, he worshipping her so completely, and she, ungrateful that she was, remaining utterly indifferent. On the other hand, remember the uninterrupted honeymoon of Raphael with his painting. In my own case, I must avow frankly that painting loves me more than I love her. And she is often put out with me, for each time that I neglect her a little in order to write, I feel her languish, even when, as I am doing now, I write only about her. I know that she will overwhelm me with bitter reproaches, for painting cannot be satisfied with words which the wind sweeps away. She wants you, my dear friend, to possess her at least three times a day, and not a single night will she fail to slip into your bed. This is why it will be so difficult for you to find a mistress, and at the same time, why she will become for you the rarest and most precious thing in the world, if you succeed in finding her. Rare and difficult, because at all costs, she must not be jealous of your painting. But on the contrary, she must love her, not only as much as you yourself do, but even more. And precious, because in spite of the fact that with painting you will experience ecstasies, you have already understood that they are of a platonic nature. She cannot therefore gratify your libido, painter though you be. See then how lucky you are since the one you will really marry when you are in your middle twenties, and who, in the eyes of all the world, will pass as your legitimate wife, or at least as your morganatic wife, will in reality of truth be only your mistress, with all the perpetual romance which this implies, while your marriage, without secrets or veils, your marriage of all the most everyday moments of your life, will be that into which you entered through the sacrament, which you contracted in your early teens before the muses of Olympus, with your dear and well-beloved painting. 
See, therefore, once more how happy you may consider yourself among men, to be able to live with your very wife as though she were a mistress, into whose arms you were escaping from the soft but too habitual conjugal bed. <laughs> what a character. I bet he had you there at the start, when he was saying every painter must have a wife and a mistress. But then he turned it around. And somehow what at first seemed preposterous and even insulting turned out to be pretty insightful. What Dali is ultimately saying is that your aspiration for greatness in your medium must be met with devotion to your work, a level of devotion that might make your partner jealous. And so, if you wish to avoid the conflicts that arise from such a situation, it is also best that your partner loves your work, or at least respects your need to do it, because then they will give you allowances for this devotion. In that regard, I think he's right. Many people who aren't artists don't understand the compulsions of the creative mind. And that is what creativity is to someone who is a high creative. It is a compulsion. It is not just a hobby that you schedule to do every Sunday. Instead, it is like a productive mental disorder. But I think it's helpful to acknowledge the compulsive element about it. And now, secret number four. The secret for constructing an Iraniarium. This secret concerns Iraniariums and how to build them. Iraniarium is a term Dali uses, which refers to a structure you build to keep a spider as a pet in your home. The structure would be made in such a way that it has an enclosure where the spider feels safe to hide in, and a circular frame that allows the spider to build its web. More than a dog, more than a cat, Dali believes that a spider is the perfect pet for a painter. And the Iraniarium acts as your spider's home, within your home. He goes on. The spider is one of the painter's good fairies, and its Ariadne thread will guide you at every moment in the menace-filled labyrinth of your studio. The best Iraniarium is constructed with a slender olive branch, which you shape as nearly as possible in a perfectly rounded hoop, leaving four or five olive leaves clinging to the outer part of the circle, on which the spider will enjoy placing himself on various occasions. This hoop of olive wood you will secure on a four-foot pine pole provided with a solid base. At the bottom of the hoop, place a small box in the shape of a perfect cube of very green pine, provided with two holes, one in the top and the other in one of the sides. This empty cube will serve as the spider's nest. Within the previously moistened box, introduce a little earth and allow it to dry well in the sun. Since amber is very sympathetic to the spider, and how much more to the painter, you must always keep a little ball of it on the cube, which you will use to magnetize the tip of your wand, with which you will manipulate and train your spider, so to speak, and with which you will reach to it its feasts of flies, of which you must always have several in reserve, 
which you may keep in a little bowl beside the ball of amber. For between amber and dead flies, there also exist numerous affinities. For your uranium to be successful, you must achieve its principal object, which is to oblige the spider you have chosen to construct its web exactly within the circle of your uranium. You will not manage this without some difficulty, and you will have to bring the spider back to the hoop of olive wood as many times as necessary until your spider finally decides to weave his web there. Once his work is accomplished, a few tidbits of flies will make him feel at home and he will stay there. And even if he should abandon his web for a time, he will suddenly reappear at the moment when you least expect him, even if you should move your uranium to a different place." Unquote. It's at this point that we have to consider, is Dolly being serious here? Or is he trolling us? Is he using even this treatise to explore the aesthetic of surrealism? twisting our expectations toward something strange and dreamlike? It's of course not so bizarre to want a spider as a pet. Plenty of people have pet tarantulas. But then in the next few paragraphs, Dolly takes it one step further. Not only does he suggest you should build this home for a pet spider, but that you should build five of them for five different spiders and keep them all in your artist's studio. Uh, yeah, it sounds kind of cool at face value, but when I looked it up, there is no mention anywhere of Dolly owning a pet spider or having uraniariums outside of this treatise. And then he takes it even one step further and implores us to take our five uraniariums and transport them to a landscape from our childhood, which we have a particular affinity to, and with them bring a large crystal bowl filled with water, the purpose of which is to line up your five uraniariums so that the spider's webs line up with the warped light of your childhood landscape, giving you a rare and sublime moment of reflection on the passage of time and the nature of light. I'm certain the effect would be beautiful and strange. Actually, it might make for a very entertaining short film. If you attempt it, please let me know. Heck, I'd love to write some music for that film. Secret number five. The secret of the painter's pointed mustache. I have even noticed that long mustaches, like those which I wear, are also useful to the painter to attract small particles, preventing them not only from attaching themselves to the canvas, but also from entering your mouth or your nose. Mustaches must be frequently washed, as is done so instinctively by the animals who wear them. You may also be suspected that for man, too, mustaches serve as antenna. This is all somewhat mysterious, but I no longer have any doubt that with my mustaches, I feel more alert, that I am more acutely conscious of everything that goes on and especially of everything that moves around me. Because of their very length, with the tips pointed and curled up, the least change of light registers on the ends, immediately communicating itself to my eyes, 
Thus, one day, I became aware of the sun that was setting behind me, for I saw something like two tiny red cherries gleaming at the tips of my mustaches. Now that I see you wearing your necklace of large amber balls, dressed preferably in black velvet, raising long mustaches, your studio adorned with araniariums, and assuming that you are now ready to paint your work, knowing even in what manner it is necessary for you to sleep before beginning to paint, and, as I have explained to you, what you must do in order really to paint well, it is necessary, going back once more, for me to deal first with the kind of knowledge that you will need before beginning to manipulate your oil colors. For if all you had to do was to follow Rembrandt's advice, take a brush and paint, it would be unnecessary to write this book. And never fear, the moment is bound to come, sooner or later, when you will have to take this brush in your hand, if, as you fear, painter, while listening to me, you do not wish your canvas to be condemned to remain virgin, immaculate, and irreparably white. But as I understand your natural impatience, and in order to satisfy it, I promise you that I shall forthwith begin the next chapter, which by itself alone, as you will presently see, is capable of making you immortal, if you are predestined to it, for it contains within its pages all the basic secrets of the first disciplines of your art. And now, it is time for an intermission. We have reached the halfway point of the magic secrets of Salvador Dali. So, let's take a little break. You can go grab a snack from the concession stand. They are currently serving lobster and chocolate-covered grasshoppers. If you have been enjoying this episode and would like to give me a tip, you can now do so over on Venmo. Yep, Creative Codex now has a Venmo account, so it's quick and easy to send me a tip if that generous feeling should arise. That money actually helps with funding the research for the show. For every episode, I find it important to read primary sources. That's where the real gold is. So I buy all of these books that I mention, and those books are the main source of my research. As an example, for the Emily Dickinson episodes, I bought six books, totaling about $150. That number varies per episode, but it's a good example of how Creative Codex is different from other art and history podcasts, which might just be browsing Wikipedia and YouTube for information. So if you ever want to leave me a tip, just open up your Venmo app and search at Creative Codex. That's one word. C-R-E-A-T-I-V-E-C-O-D-E-X. I appreciate your support, and I thank you in advance. As we wait for the show to resume, let's take a little detour to appreciate another Salvador Dali rabbit hole, his television appearances. Unlike many of the creative icons we cover, Dali reached the height of his success during a time when television was becoming a mainstay of pop culture. Because of this, there is a lot of fun footage of him for us to enjoy, 
where we get to really see what he was like in person. One of my absolute favorite clips of Dolly is his notorious appearance on The Dick Cavett Show on February 11th, 1971. The Dick Cavett Show was a somewhat dry talk show where the host, Dick Cavett, sits in front of a studio audience with a celebrity and tries to have a conversation with them, sometimes asking more thoughtful questions and, on occasion, delivering a passing quip meant to get an audience reaction. You know the type. So, February 11th, 1971. Let me set the scene for you. On this episode, in 1971, Dick Cavett decides to have three special guests. The first two are already on stage with him. The silent film star Lillian Gish, who has often been called the first lady of American cinema, and Baseball Hall of Famer Satchel Paige. They are both seated on the left side of the stage, and Dick Cavett is sitting next to an empty chair on the right side. He looks directly into the camera and says... One never knows what to expect from my next guest. Uh, He is, to say the least, an unusual man. Uh, He has a new collection of 12 original graphics that are called Memories of Surrealism, which will be available shortly at the Alan Rich Galleries here in New York. Uh, We'll be seeing some of those later in the show, and we'll certainly be seeing him. He is uh, one of the most colorful people I know. Odd is another word that's been applied. But uh, he is a man who once said about himself, the only difference between myself and a madman is that I am not mad. We'll see. Will you welcome, please, Salvador Dali. Salvador Dali briskly walks out, carrying an anteater. Yes, the animal. And as he approaches center stage, he forcefully hurls the anteater onto the ground in front of the host. It luckily lands on all fours as it soars through the air, leaving Dali holding a leash in his left hand and a cane in his right. He greets the other guests, faces the audience in his velvet suit, and raises his cane high up in the air to salute them, as the anteater is already trying to escape. Well, I think you've caught something. I can't help noticing that you have an anteater with you, Mr. Dali. Oh, oh, please. As they sit down, Dolly pulls the leash to reel the poor animal in as it tries to hold onto the carpeting. The anteater seems to want out of there, So Dolly plops it onto the tiny coffee table, which falls over, so he instead hurls it into the lap of the actress Lillian Gish. She is clearly upset, to say the least, but social etiquette dictates that everybody stay calm. This is completely normal. Little thing, it's frightened. It isn't. It's a sweet animal. It's an anteater, isn't it? But Dolly no like a child, no like at all wood butterfly is unlike animals of any kind. Only it. You only? And, and uh, uh, violent uh-huh. rhinoceros. Right off. Rhinoceros. 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 You like the rhinoceros and, and you like the anteater. Mr. Page, there's an anteater behind you. I <laughs> the situation is devolving into chaos quickly. Dick Cavett tries to reel it back in by asking a perfectly reasonable question, which only makes things worse. Are, are you somehow inspired by an anteater? Uh, it, yes, because rhinoceros and it ants is the only two animals angelic. 
And it's an angelic animal. Angelic animal. Look, can we get a look at him? He's really great. I, I, because, I don't mean... Because oh, the, okay. the tongue. The tongue is exactly represent the molecular structure of desoxyribonucleic acid. Well, I, I think we all agree on that. I... <laughs> It's hard to know, to having you and an ant here here at the same time, uh, which to... Uh, which, uh, um. At this point, the anteater is climbing around the set at its own discretion. Dolly is no longer holding the leash. It is occasionally missing its footing and, and almost falling off a wooden divider. Everyone on the stage is quickly realizing that Dolly has brought a wild animal on set with no intention of caring for it. He even readily admits it's not his anteater, but that he does have six of them at home. It is also becoming clear that Dolly's accent is barely comprehensible. Lillian Gish sits with her hands in her lap, sternly staring at Dolly, while Satchel Paige looks on with a bewildered smile, occasionally tending to the anteater crawling on him. The host tries once again to reel in the madness by asking, in his most gracious manner, for Dolly to speak more clearly. Uh, I think we just let, let, the, let the anteater walk until he finds uh, an ant. You... <laughs> Mr. Mr. Dolly, I must say that I find you, uh, your, your accent a bit difficult, so if you would speak slowly for me, it would be, uh, be nice. Uh, my English is a little is the accent of Catalonian language, you know. As one meets, for instance, uh, Mrs. Uh, uh, Miss Gish. Miss Gish. Yes. You're, you're, you're... At this moment, Dolly motions to the actress Lillian Gish, who he threw the anteater at earlier, and attempts to ask her how to say papillon in English, which is the French word for butterfly. Uh, papillon in, in good English. Butterfly. Papillon. Oh, sorry. Uh, papillon? Yes, in English. It's a butterfly? You look in, in Dalinian English. Butterfly. <laughs> butterfly. <laughs> Watch yourself. <laughs> no, because no, this is represents, uh, you know, the uh, English language is too foggy and imprecise and is necessary in so it needs more inject some feeling. reality in mm -hmm. this foggy and imprecise mm -hmm. English language. I'm going to talk to the anteater now for a while. <laughs> Mr. Dolly, uh, you... Do you... I love this clip so much. There is just so much going on. Dolly's theatrical entrance, the wild animal he lets loose on set, the angry guests, the host's futile attempts to reel in the madness, and Dolly's oddly broken yet hyper-animated manner of speaking. For anyone who is a fan of awkward comedy, the type mastered by performers like Sasha Baron Cohen or Nathan Fielder, uh, this clip is a goldmine. And it is honestly hard to tell if Dolly is being a troll or if he is doing this in the name of spectacle. I suspect it's the latter. He knows that the more outrageous he appears, that the more people will talk about him, and through association, the more people will talk about his art, and he will remain relevant. We covered this aspect of his public persona in episode seven of this podcast. In any case, check out the full segment. 
At one point, the host asks Dali if he has ever injured anyone with his pointed mustache. Without missing a beat, Dali responds, almost everybody in modern times. <laughs> it's just, uh, it's too much. The segment is from the Dick Cavett Show. If you search Salvador Dali Anteater on YouTube, it will be the first thing that comes up. Well, that does it for our intermission. The curtains are opening again. Time for secret number six. The secret of learning to draw models in reverse by the use of a mirror. In this secret, Dali recommends to always have a mirror at hand when drawing or painting, that there is great benefit in seeing your artwork or the model you're depicting reversed in the mirror. He goes on. Here is my method for learning how to draw. The plaster model is placed behind a glass marked into squares and facing a mirror in such a way that what you will see and draw will be its reflection. And in this reflection, of course, the image of the object will be reversed. In some cases, the model may advantageously be placed upside down. The reason for this reversal is that when you copy your model in this way, the preconceived image of its intellectual representation, the conventional cliché which its associations have formed in your mind, which constitute such a hindrance to the beginner, disappears as by enchantment. And after very few sessions of practicing this method, all the vices of infantilism which persist so stubbornly among apprentices in drawing will vanish. After having drawn your model in reverse, draw it again, lying down on the same scale, that is, filling the same number of squares. Put your model back into its vertical position, and in this normal position you can then correct your two drawings. Also when you draw, whether directly or in reverse, make an abstraction of what the object you are copying represents. See only forms before you, without giving them any kind of name, and preferably, instead of outlining two legs, try rather to reproduce faithfully the empty space that separates them." Unquote. Dali is describing figure drawing using a grid method. He mentions placing a clear glass between you and the model that has squares marked out on it in the form of a grid. It's interesting to point out that this was a method likely used before the age of computers by even the old masters. These days, a lot of artists just use a reference photo, draw a grid on it, and then scale up the grid to the canvas or paper they are working on. The method then allows you to focus on the contours and negative space of your model as they exist within each square, rather than trying to perceive the whole in one instance. This makes the complexity of the human body's proportions much easier to manage. The other method he mentions is the use of a mirror. In the Renaissance, this was also a very common strategy for painters. Even Leonardo da Vinci wrote about using a mirror to give him a fresh perspective on his work. I recently recorded a creativity tip all about this on my Patreon page. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash mjdorian to hear that one. These days, one of the current iterations of this trick 
is to take a photo of your artwork in progress with your cell phone. Then simply flip the image in your photo editing app. Et voila, a portable mirror in your pocket. Secret number seven. The secret that a painting should dry slowly and naturally without dryers of any kind. Know that a necessary condition of all painting is that it should dry naturally. A picture is not a door which must dry fast so that people's hands and clothes will not stick to it. Never use in painting dryers of any kind. The virtue of painting is that it should dry slowly and evenly." Unquote. One of the accepted drawbacks of painting with oils is that it gives them a notoriously longer drying time. It is even noted by artists that certain oil paint colors seem to dry faster than others. For example, reds and oranges seem to take longest to dry. In this tip, Dolly cautions us against trying to find shortcuts that speed up the natural drying process. He refers to the method of using mediums, which a painter mixes with the paint on their palette, resulting in a faster drying process for oil paints. In the neighboring passages, he describes the manner in which oils dry as a process that is filled with its own magic, as the pigments which are suspended in the oil interact with each other and begin the process of oxidation. There are a few dozen other practical tips that Dolly gives concerning the craft of oil painting that seem genuinely helpful. In one passage, Dolly says, The two most beautiful and useful colors that exist are white and black, and that the true nobility of the art of every colorist depends on the knowledge of how to utilize these as the basis of your pictorial work." Unquote. He goes on in describing the process of layering that often creates the signature effects of oil painting. It is in fact known that the bright parts of your picture corresponding to the light must be painted with more matter than the dark parts corresponding to the shadows. To such a point that the latter can never be sufficiently thin and immaterial, whereas for the others I will allow you to add as many layers as you wish, even to obtaining a thickness sufficient to be considered impasto." Unquote. In yet another practical tip, he mentions the virtues of specific oil paint colors. I shall give you now the name of a unique color, and I advise you, always and without exception, to mix it in more or less perceptible doses for every kind of shadow, some Naples yellow, which is the atmospheric color par excellence. To use this color whenever your shadows are invaded by air and even by breezes, if you are painting a landscape. And you must also know that the most beautiful yellows are obtained by spreading areolin over Naples yellow." Unquote. As far as this being a treatise on oil painting, it does seem to live up to its purpose. Which brings us to secret number eight. The secret of banishing burnt umber from the palette. In the pages that follow, Dolly provides 
two extensive lists of colors that are unsuitable for artistic painting, which one should banish from your palette, and colors which can be used with confidence. Among them, he says, to banish burnt umber, which is quite a common color. And when I was studying oil painting in high school, I don't recall anyone ever saying not to use it. But here is Dolly's opinion. You must totally exclude burnt umber, and this because of its seduction, its falseness, and its perfidy. Its seduction, for it attracts its beautiful greenish tinge, a tinge which it will lose after a time, leaving a dirty blackish residue. It's perfidy, because this color will always perfidiously and irremediably reappear, discoloring all the successive coats, no matter how thick they may be. And its falseness, finally, because being of the whole palette, the color which dries fastest, even when it mixes without any intimacy with no matter what other color, it will immediately succeed in influencing it in its desiccation, to the point of fixing it and rendering it recalcitrant to the most assiduous and solicitous efforts of your brush. So, no burnt umber. But burnt sienna is wonderful, in Dolly's opinion, as it dries properly, does not turn black, but dries as a brown, and forms a good patina. All these more specific tips concerning oil painting are actually very helpful. As you start to understand Dolly's logic, you can see the effects of these decisions in his paintings. You can see the warm tones he accomplishes likely due to the Naples yellow he relies on in his shadows. You can see the balance he explores between warm and cool tones, and dozens of other technical tidbits which he shares. It's unclear how much of these opinions were suggestions he first read in other oil painting treatises, and then tested. There is no doubt he studied the old manuscripts on oil painting, but there still remain a few secrets of oil painting that are distinctly Dalinian, such as secret number nine. The secret of the wasp medium. Here, Dali shares the formula he invented for his own medium. In oil painting, a medium is something you mix with your colors to make them more transparent, allowing you to work with washes rather than opaque consistencies. He goes on with the special formula, but also gives us the backstory of how he discovered it. And here is the formula of Dali's wasp medium. You prepare the basic medium out of equal parts of poppy oil, walnut oil, and refined turpentine. Four or five parts of this mixture. You add one part of the following, yellow amber dissolved in aspic oil, in which some wasps have been soaked. To prepare the latter, you place a small funnel of wax paper in the mouth of the flask in which you wish to contain the mixture, obstructing the neck of the funnel with three dead wasps. 
which must have their stings intact. You then pour your amber diluted in aspic oil into the funnel, enough to cover the wasps completely. The liquid should flow into your flask very slowly, drop by drop, which should be exposed to the rays of the morning sun during the hottest summer season. Rather than doubt the efficacy of my medium, I suggest that you try it. Nothing could be simpler. Here now is the objective story of this discovery. I was 29 years old, and I was painting my first basket of bread during the three months of June, July, and August, with poppy oil and walnut oil mixed without any varnish or turpentine. During those three months, I did not remove this mixture from the little white bowl which contained it. The quantity was very small, and each day it grew a little thicker and more viscous. Every day through my open window, the sun beat down on my little white bowl for over an hour. One morning, I found a large wasp drowned in it. The color of the oil shining in the sun mingled with the wasp's yellow and black stripes. It fascinated me, and I did not remove the wasp from my medium. From that moment on, I began to notice a quality which I had never before experienced in the ductility, which was honey-like and in the homogeneous fusion of my colors. Applying these became a pleasure inexplicable in itself. I immediately attached a feeling of superstition to the virtue of my wasp, and for nothing in the world would I have been willing to remove it from its inhumation in the oil, and it remained there until the picture was finished and signed. Thus, in giving its life for my painting, this wasp redeemed it of dryness, which was its single sin, so that to this day I am mindful of the principle of the coefficient of divine viscosity, which is the enigma of organic matter, on which I shall write a separate treatise, and which was revealed to me by a wasp descended from heaven to sacrifice itself and thereby sweeten my life as a painter. As outrageous as this sounds on first hearing it, I think Dolly isn't joking here. I think that despite his tendency for exaggeration and public displays of spectacle, I think in his room, in those moments of solitude when he is painting, he embodies the painter's spirit. And if a fantastical scenario such as this one arises which leads to some improvement in his painting, I think he would make note of it and try to replicate it. At the end of the day, he sees himself as a continuation of that Renaissance tradition of looking toward oil painting with reverence as a craft of magic and wonder. Secret number 10. The Secret of the Angel. When you have learned to draw and to paint without mistakes, when you know how to distinguish between the sympathies and the antipathies of natural things with your own eyes, when you have become a master in the art of washing, and when by your own resources you are able to draw an ant 
with the reflections corresponding to each one of its minute legs. When you know how to practice habitually your slumber with a key and the so hypnotic one of the three sea perch eyes. When you have become a master in the resurrection of the lost images of your adolescence, thanks to the natural magic of the retrospective use of your araniariums, when you have possessed the mystery and the most hidden virtues belonging to each of the colors and their relations to one another, when you have become a master in blending, when your science of drawing and of perspective has attained the plenitude of that of the masters of the Renaissance, when your pictures are painted with the golden wasp media, which were then as yet unknown, when you know how to handle your golden section and your mathematical aspirations with the very lightness of your thought, and when you possess the most complete collection of the most unique curves, thanks to the Delinean method of their instantaneous molding in dazzlingly white and perfect pentagons of plaster, etc., 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 Nothing of all this will yet be of much avail, for the last secret of this book is that before all else it is absolutely necessary that at the moment when you sit down before your easel to paint your picture, your painter's hand be guided by an angel. This completes the magic secrets of Salvador Dali. In the end, beyond all the human skill and craft that one can learn, Dali reminds us that we can only reach true greatness through divine providence. Interesting angle. I wonder if he thought that his painter's hand was guided by an angel. That certainly seems to be the implication. Sometimes I wonder whether he really was a narcissist or if his interior voice behind closed doors was so devastatingly self-critical that he needed to have this overconfident persona in public. There definitely seems to be some clear persona possession going on with Dali, where as he gets older, he becomes more of a caricature of himself. Either way though, this treatise is still an entertaining and insightful read. For anyone interested in learning oil painting, it has a lot of practical advice concerning pigment choices and an overall painting philosophy rooted in the spirit of the Renaissance. 
Bear in mind that we only covered 10 of the secrets in Dali's treatise. There are 40 more. Some are as short as a paragraph, and some are a few pages long. If you found any of this as interesting as I did, then I highly recommend the book. The official title is 50 Secrets of Magic Craftsmanship, and it's filled with countless sketches by Dali, but also his scribbles and notes, as if he published the book and then jotted down further notes and reference drawings in the margins by hand. It's a pretty unique effect, I like it. If you Google it though, just be aware that the PDF does not do it justice. The formatting is all weird. His margin notes end up in random places and etc. So the physical published version is really the way it was intended to be seen, and you can find pretty inexpensive copies of it online. If you enjoy the show, I have two favors to ask you. First, please send it to someone who you think will dig it. Email it or text it, whatever works for you. Creative Codex is still a small show, and this is honestly the only way we will continue to grow the audience. So please, send it around. My second favor, please leave a review of the show on Apple Podcasts. That really helps with the show's visibility, and I'm hoping to get some special guests later this year, and they will no doubt be checking out your reviews. If you'd like to learn more about Salvador Dali, I highly recommend episode 7 of this podcast. We do a deep dive into Dali's life, artwork, and psychology on that one. You can find it in the Creative Codex podcast feed. Just scroll down to the episode marked 7, Salvador Dali, Saint of Delusion. Big thank you to my Patreon supporters, Chris, Micha, Christel82, Michael Thompson, and V, thank you, you make this possible, Alex Payne, Andy Rogers, Blake Huggins, Coco, Gregory Higgins, James Schenner, Jay Booth, Logan Kshavitsky, you guys rock, Adil Abdulaziz, Anudi Valerio, DVM, Aaron Foreman, Jimmy D, John Bergmans, Jay Marchant, Michael Lloyd, Owen McCatsier, Somia Hariharan, and last but not least, Zuko's World. I appreciate you all, my shadow fam. Thank you so much for all your support. If you would like to join the Creative Codex shadow fam, head over to my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash mjdorian. That's M-J-D-O-R-I-A-N. Where you can gain access to all the exclusive creativity tip mini episodes, art giveaways, and behind-the-scenes content. The next episode will be another guided meditation. I still get a lot of people reaching out to me about the success they have had with the Jung's Digging Method meditation I released, as well as the Inner Sanctum one. Even just a few days ago, someone messaged me about it. So it's really quite incredible to know that people are experiencing these valuable aspects of their inner world through the show. So another guided meditation is coming very soon. And beyond that, another big two-parter on a major artist will follow, who I'll be revealing in the coming weeks. So stay tuned for that. Thank you again for all of your support. This is Creative Codex, and I am MJ Dorian. Until next time, remember the old Latin proverb, fortune favors the bold.
or as Dolly would say, fortune favors the butterfly. Butterfly. <laughs> <laughs>